John Metcalf, a writer, editor, book collector, literary critic. Welcome to the Bibliophile. I'd like to focus on your role as editor. I'm going to quote from An Aesthetic Underground, a literary memoir that you wrote uh, and published in 2003. It's a quote that you take from Cyril Connolly, the British writer, reviewer, editor, publisher, book collector, role model. Somewhat, yes. His book, Enemies of Promise. Often the public is taken in by a book because although bad, it is topical, its up-to-dateness passes as originality, its ideas seem important because they are, quote, in the air. I still believe technique remains the soundest base for a diagnosis. An expert should be able to tell a carpet by one skein of it, a vintage by rinsing a glassful round his mouth. The sentence forced me, this particular one, this is you writing here, first of all to stop thinking about plot or context. It forced me to think about verbs and nouns, adjectives and adverbs, the nature and level of diction, the placement of words, the rhythms of sentences, the functions of punctuation. In brief, it forced me to consider writing as a technical performance, as rhetoric organized to achieve certain emotional effects. The sentence further implies that form and content are indivisible, that the way something is being said is what is being said. seems to me that this gets at the crux of what an editor does for you. Yes. What Connolly had to say there, this was 1938. The year you were born. Yeah, that's right. Has really not been understood by many people, even now. And I think he has gone right to the centre of, of what literature is about. And I think he understands that the purpose of literature is pleasure. And the reading of literature is basically an intricate kind of game that has its own rules that a reader has to learn. And what are those rules? They come from within the craft. I think the reader has to learn how the writer performs what he or she is doing. Getting an idea of what's going on behind the scenes so they can appreciate how good it is? Yeah, it's really the sort of same kind of thing as, you know, being able to appreciate music. There are levels on which this occurs, and if you can play an instrument or read music, then you have a greater understanding of what the composer is, is trying to do. And a greater appreciation. And a greater appreciation, because you understand the difficulties of the game that is being played. But does that increase your pleasure? Yes, obviously. Why obviously? Because, you know, you're not reading for what I would think of as fairly crude things, like plots or character or anything. You're, you're picking up nuances and pleasures that are far, far more refined such as? You're listening to the play of vowels and consonants. You're hearing allusions. You're picking up the fact that a writer is alluding to an earlier piece of literature. Um, there's a whole intricate layer of technical things that writers do that can themselves afford great 
you know, increase the depth of your pleasure and of your emotional response. Some of them are very simple. Some of them are very, very complicated. Uh, it seems to me what we're talking about here is style as much as anything. I mean, I know what I read for. I read for magnificent sentences that stop me and leave me breathless. Mm-hmm. That and also life lessons that I can then apply to my own mm-hmm. life. And your role as an editor is to, what, sieve through lots and lots of material. You, you find these gems. This is what you do, is it? I mean, first of all, what an editor has to do is to have an almost innate knowledge. It's not innate. I mean, it's learned, of course, but which is the result of years of being able to form a very quick estimate of what is important and what is not important. Good and important? Yeah. Good in the sense that it'll provide pleasure. Yes, and, and, and is well-performed. I mean, for example, most of the book, not not all, I think, that are produced by the big mainstream houses in Canada, you know, Random House and Knopf and HarperCollins. If I were working purely on my own instincts, I wouldn't even bother to look at them because they've already been selected by somebody for their ability to appeal to a large number of people. Commercial, yeah. Yeah, commercial works of entertainment. This gets to a crux. If it does appeal to a large audience, then it must give pleasure. Yes. That's what Philip Larkin says about Shakespeare. The reason that he's so great is that he had to appeal to an audience to get people coming through the turnstile to give him a a living. Well, it would be very nice if, if it were true today that a book that appeals to hundreds of thousands of people could at the same time be an exemplary work of literature. I have never in my life had that experience. You know, the Vichy Code is not a very good book. Well, I mean, I think it's an appalling book. I would not waste time on it. Yeah. I I mean, waste... I, I'm looking for something else. I'm looking for... Most of the books that I've published, I mean, typically sell 250 to 500, 600 copies in Canada. And that is the best, really, that one can hope for. You know, the fact that Mavis Gallant and Alice Munro sell much more, I mean, they are superb writers, both of them. But the size of their sales is more a product of the fact that they are published and packaged very carefully and brilliantly in the United States. This is the argument that you have to go abroad to be successful in Canada. Well, I mean, if Alice Munro had remained within the confines of Canada and not published in the New Yorker, she would be selling 250 to 500 copies uh, to this day. But being taken up by the New Yorker and having a rather brilliant agent in Virginia Barber who planned an almost military campaign of selling Alice, you know, she's had this great artistic success as well. I have young writers that I've been handling at the Porcupine's Quill who deserve an audience of that size but will never, ever have it. Who are they? 
Oh, there's, there's all kinds of them. Libby Creelman from Nova Scotia, uh, Michael Winter from St. John's, Elise Levine, Annabelle Lyon. And I, could, I could give you the names of a couple of dozen writers who are incredibly skillful, write beautiful work. You know, they're, they're, they're doomed almost to remain unknown, unfortunately. Okay, so as an editor, what exactly do you do? Well, the first thing that an editor has to do is to decide what is important and what is not important. Having then sort of made the decision that this book is desirable, but that book is not desirable. Can we get to that? Yes. What, what makes it desirable? It's performance of itself. If the, let us say, collection of short stories shows interesting subject matter, insofar as, you know, I'm really interested in subject matter, um, I'm much more interested in something else. What's that? Well, it's style, it's, you know, even to talk of subject matter, you see, introduces problems, because, again, it's, it's you know, that philosophical divide that a book is about something which is separable from the words in which it is written, you see, whereas I would hold that um, the way something is written is what is being written. So yeah. I'm, looking at, I'm looking at language, principally. Okay. I'm looking at the rhythms of sentences. I'm looking at the nuances of punctuation. I'm, I'm looking at uh, the weight and the sound of sentences. And um, if these things are appealing to me, I'm sufficiently in a, in a manuscript uh, the, the task of the editor then is to figure out how the writer is writing the editorial task then becomes not to impose one's own tastes on the manuscript that one is working on but to figure out how the writer does something figure out what it is that the writer is wanting to do and then helping him or her do that to the best of their ability. But what happens if they're doing something that's completely original? Then you can't figure out what they're doing. Well, well, that does occur very rarely. Yeah, but well, these are the greats, and this is what defines great. Well, greatness. Well, I, I don't know about greatness necessarily, but I mean, uh, there are writers, and I, I think of their work as closed systems. They are so original, and their take on language and everything is so idiosyncratic that you can't get into it. Uh, I'll give you an example. There's a, a short story writer and novelist, and also a writer of children's books as well in, in, in Canada, called Terry Griggs. And she is one of the most brilliant writers uh, in the country. You can't really touch a Terry Creek story because her mind operates in ways that are so removed from the way that anyone else's mind works that all you can really do with her work, and that is all that I have done with her in the past, is to take a group of stories, let's say, you know, there are 15 stories, and say, okay, these 12 are strong and these three 
are not as strong as the other 12, so let's junk the weaker ones and either replace them or just publish a book of the 12 stories that are absolutely working on all pistons, you know. Two more examples would be Leon Rook and Keith Fraser in Vancouver. I wouldn't touch their work because... So you can't help them improve it? No, no. I can't say this sentence doesn't work or something because... In other words, sorry, you can't get that specific with them, whereas with other writers you could. Yes. With most writers, however, um, you can make useful changes in uh, vocabulary, in oddly enough, in logic. You will find, as an editor, very often instances of the most peculiar flaws of logic. You can pick up sentences that are limp, you know, where the rhythm is, is, is quite wrong for the, the effect that the writer is trying to achieve. Or, or maybe, they just, as you say, they just don't make sense being there. Or something, something needs to be chopped out or put in. A really good editor operates, you know, like, a, like one of those machines that measures electric current. As you're reading, you can feel if the power drops off. And if it does, you say, okay, there's a problem here. In this paragraph, a collapse occurs. Now, why? What can we do about it? How can we recharge that? So, I mean, that, that's really the sort of intuitive level at which an editor is working. So, in other words, what you're after is, is to help the author have this consistent high level of intense current throughout the, the whole work. Yeah, very much so. You say here, this is not to say that the writing must be poetic or fancy in any way. Rather, it must be precise, concentrated, and above all, appropriate. Yes, I was talking there about um, levels of diction, of, um, of the language of a story has to be entirely appropriate to the character speaking it, if there is one. If it's an authorial voice that's talking, you know, in the third person, then it has to be pegged exactly to the emotional pitch of the story. Uh, The mistake that a lot of people make, I think, as readers and and as writers, is that they think that uh, there is such a thing as, as dialogue which sounds completely natural, you know, completely exactly the way that people talk. And, of course, there's no such thing that the more... Well, there is, though, isn't there? I mean, all you have to do is hold up a tape recorder no, and use no, that. No, no, no. Even that no, transcription because doesn't work. Because, no, you can't transcribe the way that people talk because it's so boring and it's so dull and it's so repetitive. Yeah. And you couldn't read a page of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it just... It would be like reading gibberish. Sorry, that's exactly what a crime writer, James O'Born, recently recently suggested is if we if he told his readers and described to his readers the life of a cop it would be primarily just sitting around waiting yeah or filling in bits of paper yeah exactly but you see the the writing that people say oh it's so realistic you know and it you 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 know that this is exactly how people talk is in nearly every case when people have that kind of reaction, what they're dealing with, in fact, is artificiality at levels of sophistication you'd hardly believe. I mean... Well, what makes it that realistic, then? 
it's because the writer has imposed on the reader a feeling that yes this is how people actually really talk Hemingway did it of course brilliantly Raymond Carver did it as you say it's not a transcription it's a feeling I should, I'll just well it, it, it's a created thing that does not exist until the writer has created it and then and, and obviously the reader has interacted the, with it the, the reader gives assent to it and says yes that is exactly how people sound I, I, sh I just want to quote you again here I'm talking to John Metcalf uh, writer, editor literary critic, book collector if we have read properly, we have not, quote, understood the prose, an intellectual activity. Rather, we have experienced the prose by entering into a relationship with it. Prose, which is brilliantly performed, offers inexhaustible pleasures. Yeah, I, I use this word performed a lot because um, I think that is, in fact, what good prose does. It performs itself. It gives a performance. Which is why you like Rook so much. Well, of course. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, reading a, a Rook short story is very often like watching a play or listening to a play being performed in front of you. I mean, it's irresistible. Well, and he, as a per-human being, is such a performer as well. Of well, yes, yeah, sort of manic, yes. And magnificent to listen to. Entertaining, absorbing, just like the book you yes, would wish. Yes, and, and sort of brimming over with verbal exuberance. You know, I mean, his, his, the worlds that he creates um, are, are verbal ones. They have very little relationship to the, <laughs> you know, to the real world, as it were. Which is, I suppose, what the reader wants. They don't want the real world. They want to escape into something that's bigger than the real world. Yes, except, you know, and then, then that, this comes back, though, you see, to game playing, because you have to learn what the Rook world is, and you have to be able to love language enough to be overjoyed by being exposed to what he's doing. If you cannot give yourself to what language can do to you, you will never understand what he is doing, because you'll be asking the wrong question. You know, it, it's like... Um, but sorry, I mean, I love the Russians. I, I, I approached them without knowing anything about them. But they got me into that world in a way I, I don't really understand why I got into that world, but boy, it took me. What did they do? What did the Russians do? Or what did, what did the greats do then? Well, I think that they perform in language. Uh, it, it's difficult to talk about the Russians because you're talking about translation. Okay, let, let's talk. <laughs> but I mean, of course, it doesn't matter. The English, obviously. <laughs> whoever translated the Russians. Yeah. But you, you're, you've said a number of times you need to know, you know what game is being played in, or, in order to really deeply appreciate. It's like art. I mean, you can. I, that's, the, that's the thing. You can go in and you can you can look at a work of art and you can love it and. Sure, reading up on it is, is going to deepen your pleasure, but you either love it or you don't love it. Mm -hmm. um, it's a tempting analogy, but and I've, I've done it myself a few times, comparing writing and painting, but of course, language has meaning. Painting does not. Um, 
there is something that comes between... Uh, basically, what we're trying to do is to get at the emotional, perhaps the emotional experience, and the, mm-hmm. what comes between us and the emotional experience when reading a book or words, when, when, when we're looking at a painting, it's the actual paint, it's the lines, mm-hmm. it's the... Yeah, yeah. The, the, the ultimate objective, I think, is to, is to convey some sort of emotional experience to share it with the reader. That's what the, uh, mm-hmm. the author, the creator, wants. What what a writer sets out to do, and I think th- th- this is coming back again to the idea of game playing. What the writer is trying to do, uh, and readers, I think, sometimes don't quite grasp this. That 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 what the writer is setting out to do, right from the very start, is to create a structure of words of rhetoric that is, you know, the, uh, the placement of words and the placement of punctuation and, you know, all the intricate things that writing does. The, the, end the persuasive placement of just using yeah, rhetoric. Yeah, well, well, you see, exactly. Because what the writer is setting out to do is to, manin- to manipulate through rhetoric the emotions of the reader. Now, this implies that, that the writer writing is pretty cold-blooded, right? I mean... Yeah, yeah. It, Playing with our emotions. It, yes, exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and obviously, it, it implies all kinds of other things behind that, that the writer is, in fact, something like a puppeteer, almost, mm. you know, is pulling all the strings. Or God. And, or God. So... If, if the writer is doing that, the writer himself cannot be feeling all the things that the story sets out yeah. to do because yeah. his problem so is, 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 is to make other people feel things, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, he's not feeling them. Well, no, I don't know about that. I mean, if well, the writer, I mean, while the writer is writing, they definitely do feel. Well, uh, but maybe, but as you see, there's an ulterior motive. Yeah, I mean, there always has to be a controlling intelligence behind the manipulation of feeling. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, the writer often will say, I don't know where it's going, it's just taking me over. Yeah, well, I mean, this is nonsense. This is absolute nonsense. And, uh, you know, I think writers who say that are just sort of being romantic, you know. I don't know. I mean, look at at Mozart. Mozart is being the conduit. Well, now, 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 we're getting into music as well. I understand that, but, but I, you know, I have, I've talked to writers who have told me this, and I think they genuinely believe it. That they, they sit down at the table every morning, and but then there is a time and place when it just flows. It just they don't. They're not. I think Lisa Moore said this very recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand that, but I mean, Lisa Moore is not saying that. She sits down every morning with no idea of what it is that she's doing or why no. and starts to write down words. I mean, nobody believes that. No, but I think that I think the muse does visit. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's a way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one can write until one hits a certain pitch of current uh, and some writing can be awkward and obstinate and difficult to do and balk at being put down and there are other periods of time when things do flow very rapidly but 
what I'm what I'm saying about the um, the intention of the writer. I mean, usually they usually they've got a fairly canny idea of what it is that they are setting out to do. And you, as the editor, I once have you receive that, you clue into that, yeah. and then you talk to the writer about that. Yes, I, I mean, I, I, I will say things to a, to a writer, like, in this scene, you are wanting to manipulate our emotions to feel this particular thing. Do you think that this word is perhaps impeding our grasp of that feeling or the, the, the creation or of that feeling? Or accessing it in yes, yourself. Yes, you know, can, can we... So you're sort of... A unclogging the, the channels to the uh, response from the reader. Yes. Yes. That's a very good way of putting it. There comes a point where everything is completely or as perfectly unclogged as you and <laughs> the author <laughs> can get. Well, yes. I, I, I mean, I think there's a... Writing can, can get too worked over at times. Yeah, when do you call it off? When do you say this is this is as direct, uh, you know, this is as good as well? You, you, it's gonna uh, get. You, you see, this is this is where uh, editing becomes something more than a technical exercise or or a um, a job, you know, or a or a, a, a proficiency, because as an editor, you have to enter into an emotional relationship with the work itself and also with the writer. Yes. And you have to make a judgment fairly early on about what people are capable of taking in the sense of how much bossing around they will endure or put up with. Yes. How much they really need that and how sort of micro-controlling do you wish to be? Now, what I try to do... So, sorry, you have to basically read the personality of each author. Yes, uh, absolutely. And also, if I get a sense that one of my writers is perhaps emotionally a little fragile, shall we say, very sensitive, sensitive to or, criticism, or, or uh, you know, unable to take really a harsh... Rejection or, or um, but the point is, you've already accepted them, though, haven't you? You're rejecting them after having accepted them. Yes. So yes. it's not. It's not well, yes, but you still have to be very, very careful. I mean, there are some writers that I have dealt with in the past that I have walked around very, very carefully, and I have hinted and I have suggested possibly that they might like to rethink this or look at that. Um, diplomat. You know, so editor is diplomat. And there are other writers, on the other hand, that I know are very tough. You know, I just go in and punch their lights out. And they, they take that. They take it from you because so many other writers respect you. Is that why they take it, do you think? Well, I think... I would prefer to think that they take it because they've read my work and they know that I'm a writer as well. I, if I were not a writer, I don't think that I would have the gall to be an editor, quite frankly. Um, I feel that... It's like, it's the, sorry, it's the, it's the old line, you know, those that can do, those yeah. that can't teach. You know, yeah. That, yeah. Uh, that type of pejorative... Right. And, and, and I mean, I, 
you know, the, I think the, the, the reason why I'm probably fairly effective as an editor is that I, I know what it has cost them to produce what's in front of me, and um, they know that I know, and my interest, and, you know, and, and, in, and in many cases affection, Quite well, a very emotional yeah. relationship, yeah. They trust me, the, you know, I know that I'll tell them the truth as I see it, and that I'm not part of some commercial enterprise which is setting out to try and destroy them in some kind of emotional way, you know. Unless, of course, their motive is to make money. But maybe yeah, well, I never deal with writers who are interested in making well, money. Well, wait a minute, I'm sure they're all interested. Well, they're all interested, but I but mean, that's there, not are, primary there, you know, there is some whoring they are not prepared to do. <laughs> John uh, Metcalf, writer, literary critic, and well-regarded editor, who... Have you edited then that we would know about? Uh, can you tell us uh, who who you've edited? Lisa Moore, Michael Winter, Leon Rook, Alice Munro. Rather long list goes back forty years now, um, and I like to think some of the most brilliant of the um, younger short story writers in the country, such as. Oh, there are, there are so many of them. Yeah, and you don't uh, want to offend the ones that you leave out, but <laughs> who comes to mind? Uh, well, uh, you know, people that I tremendously enjoyed working with, Caroline Addison, um, Katie Miller, uh, Elise Levine, uh, Annabelle Lyon. Uh, there's just a, yeah. a long, long list. Of you know, the sad thing is that who's heard of them? Well, um, they, they represent... Um, the people who are going to be written about in the future in reference books and um, taught at universities will and taught at universities and will be described in the future as Canadian literature and the new faces of fiction from North in the main will not. This is this is in your humble opinion, obviously. Yes, in, in my not so humble opinion. Um, these names you've just listed mm. will stand the test of time. Oh, absolutely, I think, okay. yeah. As an editor, then, you've gotten to the point, then, typically how long does it take once you get the manuscript? Uh, I guess it depends on how long the manuscript is, but typically, can you give us a, a bit of a timeline? I mean, I guess I guess as uh, working with the Porcupine's Quill, you, you sort of, okay, here comes the manuscript, you've got that in, you've, you're working with the, the writer, but you, you, you sort of have it, you want to get it out by such and such a date, correct? Or not? Um, well, in, in, in many cases, at the Porcupine's Quill, I find a writer by reading the literary magazines, by things that people send me in the mail, by word of mouth recommendations from other writers who say, you really must read this kid. If I... If I find, say, you know, one story by a writer that I'm very struck by, I will write to that person and say, would you like to work with me towards a book, a collection of stories? So someone like Ramona Deering? Yes. Yeah, okay. And, and uh, what then happens is that... Um, as they write new stories, they'll mail them to me, and we we just work on them as they as they do them, and the book comes out 
you know, it goes into the pipeline and it comes out when it can come out. But right. um, once you've gotten a critical mass of stories, too, yeah, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, uh, is I, it I, circumscribed by the number? Like, you don't want the book to be more than two hundred and fifty pages? Oh, no, no. I mean, obviously, <laughs> obviously, you know, um, a five hundred page manuscript is going to give you pause. You know, you're going to say, "Whoa!" You know, that's not a short uh, story. Um, no, uh, we d- we did do a, a huge novel by Keith Fraser called Popular Anatomy. It cost us um, vast sums of money for every copy that we sold. You know, we yeah. lost yeah. huge sums of money. So typically you do, uh, you, you mean, you, you try and keep the, the selection of stor- short stories to well, like 10 to or 12, like let's say. Yeah, and, like and a 200-page book. Or right, okay. Like yeah. okay. Yeah. Once you've cleared the pipeline between writer and the reader... Uh, to, to give sort of the most direct, powerful exchange of ideas and emotion and uh, to create that in the reader, uh, then what do you do? That's it? You just send it off to the, the, the printing press? Um, layout, obviously. Uh, do you have any input into uh, the you know, typeface and things like that or not really? Well, at the Porcupine's Quill, the, uh, the owner of the, of the press, Tim Ingster, has a a Heidelberg press in his basement. He, he is a printer, and so all the technical decisions about printing are simply nothing to do with me. Okay, um, that's it. Once, you, once yeah. the content is uh, is finished, is established, it's over to him, yeah. and uh, and then I I would imagine that uh, the author might have some input if they wished, or if if not, it's just left up to the discretion of the designer printer. Yeah. Have we covered the waterfront as far as what you do as an editor? I'd, I'd come back to that business of knowing what to read and what not to read. What, what, do, you mean, what do you mean? Well, I mean... What, what, I, what, not to, what to go with and what not to go with in terms of uh, or, or proceeding with a, a writer that has submitted a manuscript? No, I, I'm, 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 I'm talking about knowing what it is that you want to read. Are you talking about a story? Is it about a reader or about as an editor? No, I'm talking as an editor. Although, as a reader, it, 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 it similarly thing. applies. Uh, I mean, I, I get so much stuff to read that obviously I cannot read it all. Yeah. So I really come back to that business that you were reading earlier about Cyril Connolly being able to tell a vintage just from swishing a mouthful of wine around your palate. And Connolly says, recommends, in fact, in The Enemies of Promise, fantastic book, the process of opening a book at random and reading a paragraph. And he says in that book, from reading one paragraph, you ought to be able to tell whether this is a book that you want to read or you don't want to. It's and funny, sorry to interrupt, but you quote Alice Munro saying something very similar about how she reads short stories, yes. referring to it as a house, and she can just sort of go yes. potter around. And, she might, and that she might start in the middle or at the end. Um, really, it doesn't much matter. I don't, I don't read more than two pages of anything that comes in. And if something comes in... You don't read in two, more than two pages, unless, of course, then, of course, the two pages hit you, then you can... T- obviously yes, then, then I'll read the, the, the thing. But, I mean, I think you have to be able to tell that quickly, yeah. which means 
that you're taking something out of context, so you're not reading for information, you're not reading for plots, you're not reading for character, you're reading sentences, rhythm, vocabulary, punctuation, tone, silence. Current. It's all there. And you just put your finger on it, exactly, a current. You just put your finger on it and it goes... Or it goes... You know, and you just chuck it out. Uh, life's too short. I always enjoyed, because I kind of understood, actually, profoundly what he meant, enjoyed the remark of Ford Maddox Ford, who used to edit with pound. You know, one of the early magazines in, in Paris of expatriate writing. And he was described by somebody as that he could tell a good manuscript by almost smelling the envelope. He said, I don't read manuscripts, I know what's in them. <laughs> There's a sort of almost mystic sense of, yeah, you know, you, you can... After a know. while, you just know. Yeah. And I'll tell you a, an interesting little anecdote about that. Um, I was showing off at the time, which was very rude of me. I was teaching... And unusual, I'm sure. Uh, yes. I, I was teaching at um, Humber School for Writers, uh, which I do most summers. I had somebody in the class who I felt was not grasping quite a lot of what was going on. And the day came round when we were discussing a short story that she had written. People gave various sort of responses to her work and uh, every, everybody had read it uh, previously, you see. In that particular class, uh, what I was doing was I was letting everybody talk about a story uh, of the, by their fellow students. And um, when everybody had sort of made some comment or, you know, uh, talked a, a bit about the story I would provide my own opinion um, in a kind of a summing up kind of way I don't know, perhaps I was in a bad temper or something that day but um, I said to this girl now this story is really quite dreadful the characters are invented the plot is invented and very badly and the whole thing is devoid of interest except for your description of this shed in the garden, which is a real shed and actually has a personal connection to you and probably to your childhood. And I mean, she was staring at me in amazement as though I were performing, you know, conjuring tricks. She said, but how did you know that? And I said, very, very simply, because the second that you got onto that shed and the things that were in it, nouns started to appear. It's like mushrooms. <laughs> and I said, you know, it's so easy for an editor sitting outside to look in and say, you know, blah, 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 blah. Ah, here comes the current. And the current comes not because the thing is real. I don't mean that. A real yeah, so can be invented. challenge you on, on the fa you know, fact that great fiction doesn't have to come from direct no, 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 of course, I would never say such a thing. But it's those nouns that are the dead giveaway, you know, because at last 
you know, all the vaporing and the gassiness disappears. Something and concise and solid. Concrete, and, and yeah. you are dealing with a hammer. You're dealing with an iron spike. Yeah. You know, you're dealing with something you can touch and see and feel. It wasn't uh, all bullshitty, it was just real. Yep, yep, yep. You know, and, and of course that could be real or invented. But, I mean, the key thing is nouns, see? Um, Which gets right down to technique, as you said. Yeah, yeah. Building blocks. Understanding the building blocks. Yes, yes. And another, uh, I mean, another thing that's terribly important for writers and obviously for me as an editor is a change that's taken place in Canada over the last 30 or 40 years is that 40 years ago the young writers were really not reading very much I mean I was reading work that betrayed no influence of anybody that you could dream of whereas now all the young writers, most of them anyway, have read everybody. They, Laurie Moore, Amy Hempel, you know, Barry Hanner, uh, they've read all the terrific Americans and they've absorbed all the lessons. These great writers are great readers. Yeah. And they know Carver off by heart. They, they know Anne Beatty and they know, or they should know, Alice Munro and Mavis Gallant. And so all this is becomes part of their stock in trade, you know. I mean, they, they, they're understanding now, in a way that they never were before, that they are part of a movement, if you like, a, 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 although it, it doesn't have any isms connected with it, really, except technical ability. Mm. But, uh, but part of their arsenal of, you know, skills as a writer is to have read. So you sound much more sanguine about... Uh, what's happening in Canada than uh, now than 20 years ago. It sounds well, like quite, you know, this may not even suit your character as someone who's a bit of a gadfly. sounds to me like you're, you're mellowing and sort of... Or, oh, or no, I, I, I mean... Not I, mellowing, but you, see, you know I, what I'm saying? You, well, I think... You, see, you I seem think much more optimistic or pleased with what's happening well, now. I think that 40 years ago, 30 years ago, that when writing started to flower in Canada that there were large numbers of very stupid people who said things like um, oh, I don't read Americans you know, I'm a Canadian and they, and, and, and they wrote these dull boring crappy books yeah, it's so ignorant to, to put it, a place well, of race and nationality on top of literature well, it's, exactly. it's, you go with what's great and it doesn't yes. matter where it yes. comes from exactly yes but you see until very recently you had only people like me were saying that and I've been attacked for saying that for 40 years by Canadian nationalists yeah. I mean so they, they, they say of me oh don't pay any attention to him he's British yeah. you know yeah. which is uh, an argument I've never really grasped, but uh, yeah. but now I I, I, do, I do feel that there's a considerable sophistication. All the all the younger writers that I'm have been working with lately, they know exactly what the Americans are up to. And I mean the other the other thing that one has to say, indelicate as it may be to say, is that the Americans are better than we are. 
Well, there's more. Principally, because there's more of us. There's more of <laughs> And again, I suppose, you know, coming out of India, too, there's there even more of them. So, you know, it yeah, must be... Yeah, yeah. But the, the short story is basically an American invention. Mm. The number of great American short story writers, I mean, it's almost inexhaustible. So, I mean, if you don't know them, and know them intimately, and know exactly how they achieve the effects that they achieve, if you don't know that stuff, uh, then you're simply ignorant and, and so self-limiting that you'll never write anything of any importance. Well, and you're unlikely to surpass them. Well, you're, you're unlikely to be allowed into the same room, you know. <laughs> and, uh, so you, you, you have to sort of, I think, stamp on those ideas with all one's power because... It, it's just it's just a form of terrible ignorance and um, yeah, ethnocentric. It, uh, it, it, it's limiting. squalid. It's intellectually squalid, you know, and artistic suicide, of course. Yeah. Um, it's so odd that it's so odd that this was something that just wasn't taken for granted. I can't. It's just really strange well, to, 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 to believe that people. Nationalists would think this way, uh, you know. Well, thinking people. What what it all is at base is there's a terrible anti-Americanism in this country, (laughs) and it comes from a sort of an inferiority complex, I think, Mm. and um, uh, it's been compounded uh, by the federal government or successive federal governments and the Canada Council. I mean, which was basically. Um, fed the idea that the purpose of literature is to create national unity and a national Canadian identity whereas the purpose of literature is to give pleasure and you know to to use it uh, and, and you hear it they're putting, the, they're putting the card before the yeah, horse so what they're doing. over and over again yeah. you hear the liberals particularly uh, it's essentially a liberal position. Um, they they say things like, and this is a direct quote from the last Minister of Culture, culture is a tool. Mm. Now, you know, I mean, this just... She's the tool, or yeah, he, he's the tool. <laughs> it, this, it, it just displays an uncomprehending ignorance of what art is about. And you can't talk about art to these people and the Canada Council compounds all this by insisting that it gives aid only to French and English other literatures don't exist you know know, we're getting a little away from the specific uh, this may be another conversation of course but do you think we've exhausted do you think you've said what you you've conveyed what it is the essence of the editor yes I think so I mean, the only thing that, I, that I'd add about editing, I mean, is coming back to Cyril Connolly again, the implications of what Connolly has to say about prose and the nature of prose is that um, when, he, when he says that um, a, a sentence is not an intellectual thing, it's something that emotionally you uh, connect with, what that means is that you can't read a book and say, well, I've read that. I, or I understand that you, you wouldn't say that about a painting or you wouldn't say that about a piece of music you know, well, yes I've heard that or you wouldn't say about a painting yep, I had a look at that 
it's well, something some that, it's something that well, yes. <laughs> done that okay, yeah. Yeah. it's something that you can return to over and over and over again and it will always give you slightly nuanced differences of uh, impression and feeling and it's something that you can enjoy and it's very if people don't feel that way about prose yeah. it's very difficult to teach them that, that, that this is not something that they are reading for content it seems to me then, just to summarize, then what basically what we've got here is that you look for the kinds of prose that allow for that kind of experience. One that, sure, there's content, but it's, there's a richness to it that allows you to come back over and over again to it and see different things in it. Yes, yes. It's and get different pleasures from it. Right, yeah. And it's all connected. All that technical stuff connects back to the idea of performance your connection to the prose as a reader, as an editor, I mean, on whatever level, is the same in many ways as being in a theatre audience. You are, not, you are connected to the performance that is going on, and every night it is slightly different. And there are more things to be seen and more pleasures to be absorbed as you watch the thing over and over and over again. Um, and good prose is like that. Bad prose is not. Well, thanks very much for uh, plugging us into your current <laughs> and, uh, and uh, your world uh, and experience as an editor. I've been talking with John Metcalf, writer, editor, literary critic, book collector. The list continues. No, I don't want to end it that way. <laughs> what, how should we end that? Uh, um, bibliophile. <laughs> Yes, that's a big good. Thanks again. <laughs>